Warning, binge mode contains adult content. That's right, Lav Lav. Listen, it's time to break up. Ron will tell you that eventually when he gets his sack up. In the meantime, you just keep doing the thing you do, you guys together. It's a beautiful thing. You're a physical being, Lav Lav. Don't feel bad about it. But if you don't want to hear that kind of discourse from your podcast hosts, please check out one of the other fine Ringer properties on the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're singing to Odo, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, Binge Mode. Voldemort stood up. He looked less like Tom Riddle than ever, his features thick with rage. This is your final word. It is, said Dumbledore, also standing. Then we have nothing more to say to each other. No, nothing, said Dumbledore, and a great sadness filled his face. The time is long gone when I could frighten you with a burning wardrobe and force you to make repayment for your crimes. But I wish I could, Tom. I wish I could. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. It's a great, 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 great website. It's fabulous. Joining me today, now that he's finished telling me that I'm setting too much store by the prophecy. <laughs> it's Ringer senior creative and your headmaster, yes. Jason Concepcion. Mal, you are still too young to understand how unusual you are. Or how unusual Binge Mode Harry Potter is, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether... You're more of a cup or a locket type. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or just wherever you get your podcasts. Please also rate and review us. Five points, five stars for Binge Mode. Please also be sure to check out our fantastic Beast Crimes of Grindelwald final trailer breakdown, which you can find on the Ringer's YouTube channel and all the Ringer great website and binge social platforms. And speaking of, Mash that follow button on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to list all of Ravenclaw's possible relics. Yesterday on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how moves and counter moves shape chapters 16 through 19 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 20 through 23. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep on details from all seven books and eight films in the wider Potter canon. Oh, it's wide. Taking the entire series into account from the moment Voldemort asks us for a job. So grab your venom, say some words, and sip some wine. Because it's time to head into Slughorn's head. Mal, I wonder what you will say when I confess that I have been curious for a while about the behavior of these plot points. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Prince Chapters 20 to 23 by climbing aboard this Scarlet Steam Engine to plot the Hogwarts Express. Harry continues on his Dumbledore-aided journey through Voldemort's past, and he sees two more memories of Tom Riddle, this time as a young and youngish man. But Harry's side education hits a snag because without the proper memory from Slughorn, Dumbledore tells him, there is no point continuing these lessons. Tough moment for my guy. Extremely tough. Harry has other concerns at the moment, though. Naturally. 
<laughs> Mainly Draco, whom he learns is spending much of his time in the room of requirement. But Harry proves unable to break in or catch him in the act. Finally, though, he experiences some success when a little help from Felix Felicis, Aragog, and some refilling bottles convince Slughorn to hand over that memory. Harry and Dumbledore watch what really transpired, and the headmaster reveals that what he has suspected is true. Voldemort sought to make himself immortal with the creation of numerous horcruxes. To kill him in the end, Harry must first destroy these fragments of the Dark Lord's soul. Jason, armed with this information, the crucial podcast you have succeeded in procuring for us, we are closer to the secret of finishing binge mode than anyone has ever been before. Wow. <laughs> and that gets us to this episode's big idea. Mm. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme in chapters 20 through 23 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince is clarity. Chapter 20, Lord Voldemort's Request. Harry and Ron are out of the hospital, and at least one good thing has come from their time in Madame Pomfrey's ward. Hermione is now speaking to Ron again. Her casual and oftentimes cruel dismissal of him in recent weeks wasn't uninformed malice. It was the product of her pain as she watched him pursue a romance with Lav-Lav, absent any consideration of her feelings. Indeed, though she doesn't know it, directly in response to Ron learning more about her past feelings for Vic the Dick Crump. But seeing Ron <laughs> barely escape death pushed all of that away. Remember earlier in the book when Mrs. Weasley lamented how quickly Bill and Fleur had rushed into their engagement. Quote, it's all this uncertainty with you-know-who coming back. People think they might be dead tomorrow. Hermione already knew how she felt about Ron. She'd invited him to Slughorn's party and was ready to start making moves. She's not just responding to the forces of war, and neither we should know to Fleur and Bill, but war still clarifies, puts you on the clock. After a truly terrifying reminder of what she could lose, she doesn't want to waste any more time. Speaking of romance, though, yes. as Hermione tells Harry that Dean and Ginny have been arguing, Harry's like, what's this? <laughs> Say again? Excuse me? Also, I love the way that Rowling writes it. The beast in Harry's chest stirs and begins to scent the air. <laughs> the mention Sniffing, of hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Our pals pass a small girl in the seventh floor corridor who drops the brass scale she's carrying. Another Goyle crab polyjuice lookout clue in as Harry's pressing Hermione for details about their row arousing both himself and Hermione's suspicions about why he is so interested, Luna appears, shoves a Gertie root, a toadstool, and what appears to be cat litter in Ron's hands, and gives Harry a scroll for his next meeting with Dumbledore. Every moment with Luna is a precious this is gift. fantastic. <laughs> As Harry arrives for his lesson, someone else is leaving Dumbledore's office. Trelawney, and she is pissed. Yeah, imagine having to take a meeting with Trelawney. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about being... Quote, thrown unceremoniously from his chambers. Very well, she says to Dumbledore. If you will not banish the usurping nag, so be it. Very not appropriate, I'm sorry. Not kind. No. Perhaps I shall find a school <laughs> where my talents are better appreciated. Of course, Dumbledore can't let Trelawney go right, anywhere. too valuable. Which is why he worked so hard to keep Umbridge from banishing her last school year, even after she'd been sacked. The truth of the prophecy is buried deep in the recesses of her mind and must be closely guarded, kept away from Voldemort and his minions. Though, of course, Trelawney doesn't know this. Crucially, has no knowledge of this. She is not conscious of having made the prophecy, nor of what danger she'd be in out in the open world. And Dumbledore 
seems tired to Harry as he sits and asks where things stand between Trelawney and Ferenz. Quote, divination is turning out to be much more trouble than I could have foreseen, Dumbledore says, never having studied the subject myself. He tells Harry that he can't send Ferenz back to the forest where he's an outcast, nor can he send Sybil into the world. Quote, she does not know, and I think it would be unwise to enlighten her, doesn't he always, yeah. <laughs> that she made the prophecy about you and Voldemort, you see. But Harry is not there to discuss staffing problems, although it is a measure of their deepening relationship that Dumbledore is willing to discuss these issues with Harry. Dumbledore shifts gears, asking if Harry's managed to complete his homework, which is a very awkward subject to discuss right now. Harry's, of course, been very busy dealing with some truly important things. Ron almost died. Uh Uh-huh. He also was concussed on the Quidditch field. He had a broken skull. His skull was cracked. And he's also been woefully distracted by things like apparition and his blinding obsession with Draco. So, like, there's been stuff going on. In fact, from the book, Harry had almost forgotten about the memory Dumbledore had asked him to extract from Professor Slughorn. When Harry lamely says that he asked Slug for it once and didn't get it, quote, there was a little silence. Dumbledore x-rays him in his own trademark fashion, and he says, and you feel that you have exerted your very best efforts in this matter, do you? That you have exercised all your considerable ingenuity? That you have left no depth of cunning unplumbed in your quest to retrieve the memory? It's very, very tough. And Harry's out here like the Schoenkaiser. And Dumbledore just asked him if he did everything he could to turn himself into Aaron Rodgers. Not quite. Very, very tough. I still ride for Deshaun Kaiser. Dumbledore says, I thought I made it clear to you how very important that memory is. Indeed, I did my best to impress upon you that it is the most crucial memory of all and that we will be wasting our time without it. It's a very tough spot for Harry because on the one hand, the headmaster is not telling Harry exactly why this memory is so essential, nor even what these memory studies are supposed to be about. But he is right to observe that he's been very plain about the importance of this task. Remember last lesson when they butted heads and Harry said in defense of his own intractability, I don't think what you've got to say is unimportant, sir. He meant it. But his ensuing failure to correctly prioritize the mission that Dumbledore set out for him undoes those words and muddies his commitment. Dumbledore's not angry, but from the book, this cold disappointment was worse than anything and fills Harry with shame. The most uncomfortable silence Harry has ever experienced with Dumbledore falls between them. From the book again, Harry felt strangely diminished, as though he had shrunk a little since he entered the room. It's brutal. At last, Harry breaks the silence, apologizing sincerely for not trying harder. I should have realized you wouldn't have asked me to do it if it wasn't really important, he says. Dumbledore thanks him for the apology, but also says very plainly, there's no point in us meeting again if you don't get the memory. They move on to today's lesson with some important framing. To this point, Dumbledore says he's shown Harry, quote, reasonably firm sources of fact for my deductions about what Voldemort was up to until he turned 17. Now, though, quote, things become murkier and stranger. The entire pursuit here is the hunt for something definable, something that they can really know. The keys to beating Voldemort rest in unearthing the secrets that he's worked so hard to obscure. That's proving hard for a reason. Mm -hmm. For ages, he was a ghost subsuming himself in such evil that when he emerged, he was nearly unrecognizable to those who knew the boy he'd been. Real clarity about what happened in those years, and thus what has to be accounted for and undone, will need to be deciphered in piecemeal fashion, stitching clues together until a picture takes shape. 
The memory that Harry needs to secure from Slughorn is the biggest missing piece. Seven pieces, really. But gleaning anything about what Voldemort got up to after his school days is essential, too. But, as Dumbledore says, quote, if it was difficult to find evidence about the boy Riddle, it has been almost impossible to find anyone prepared to reminisce about the man Voldemort. In fact, I doubt whether there's a soul alive, apart from himself, who could give us a full account of his life since he left Hogwarts. Mm. Think about that. It jives so perfectly with everything we know about Voldemort, whose followers are, as Dumbledore has said, deluded if they think he really cares about them. We know that he killed his own father and grandparents as soon as he could, wanting not to build ties with that part of his family, but to erase them from existence entirely. We know that he faded away enough that his birth name wasn't widely associated with him, that a wizarding boy growing up in the wizarding world, for example, Ron Weasley, wouldn't immediately recognize the name T.M. Riddle and associate it with the greatest dark wizard of all time Mm -hmm. after scrubbing slug vomit off of his trophy during detention. Voldemort is a shadow, an idea a force made all the scarier by the air of mystery around him. That's what Dumbledore is seeking to rob him of, the edge of the unknown. It's a great, great point. To that end, he has two final memories to share with Harry. He says, I shall then be glad of your opinion as to whether (laughs) the conclusions I have drawn from them seem likely. Harry feels not buoyed by this comment, but fresh guilt about his failure to prove worthy of that kind of camaraderie and respect. After all, isn't this what Harry has been seeking all along? Yes. Not just to be informed, but to be part of the process. What do you think? You have faced the Dark Lord more than any person alive. Let me in. Let me help. What do you think about this? Sorry, I've got Quidditch. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my friend was poisoned after taking a love potion. The first of the curious recollections, as Dumbledore calls them, comes from an old house elf named Hokey. But before they dive in, he provides some more background about the end of Tom Riddle's Hogwarts tenure. He secured top grades, naturally, and nearly everyone expected the prefect, head boy, and winner of the award for special services to the school to go on to great things. Surely at the ministry. Mm -hmm. Slug, among others, offered to set up meetings. From the book again. He refused all offers. The next thing the staff knew, Voldemort was working at Borgen and Burks. And Harry is stunned by this. Like a shop boy? Despite our Ron jokes, there's nothing at all wrong with working in a shop. Of course, it's a noble pursuit. Yes. But it in no way aligns with what we know about Voldemort's priorities or his character. Uh We don't think about Voldemort as working for other people. From the book again, I think you will see, Dumbledore tells Harry, what attractions the place held for him. So he had an agenda, another mysterious goal. But Dumbledore adds, this wasn't Voldemort's first choice of post-grad work. He wanted to stay on at Hogwarts as a teacher. And Harry, again, is stunned by this news. Though Dumbledore, who has studied Voldemort closer than anyone and who himself chose a life at Hogwarts over other opportunities, has a few theories. First, he believes Voldemort was, quote, more attached to this school than he has ever been to a person. Hogwarts was where he had been happiest, the first and only place he had felt at home. Sound familiar? Right. (laughs) Harry certainly thinks it does, and he squirms uncomfortably hearing this because, wow, This sounds like me. Uh But that's only partially true. Though Hogwarts is Harry's truest home and the place where he discovered his true self, the first part of Dumbledore's description does not fit. Harry cares more about Hermione and Ron and the Weasleys and Sirius and Lupin than anything else. Voldemort does not have that. He doesn't have friendship or camaraderie. He doesn't have people or bonds he really believes in and needs. doesn't crave or understand the kind of love that can alter one's life. And we're about to see that in these memories. Boy, are we. Second, Dumbledore says, quote, this line gives me a chill. 
The castle is a stronghold of ancient magic. Undoubtedly, Voldemort had penetrated many more of its secrets mm. than most of the students who passed through the place. But he may have felt that there were still mysteries to unravel, stores of magic to tap. This is truer than even Dumbledore realizes, truer than anyone but Harry will discover. We already know that in uncovering Voldemort's connection to Slytherin's line, he also uncovered the Chamber of Secrets. And we will soon learn that he discovered the Room of Requirement, though that in his arrogance and hubris and his dismissal of others that he views as beneath him, he mistakenly assumed that no one else had uncovered this particular knowledge. We will talk about that much more at length in Deathly Hallows. And we'll also learn that he managed to convince the Grey Lady, ghost of Helena Ravenclaw, to tell him about the location of her mother's lost diadem, which he'd turn into another Horcrux and return to the school to hide. As we'll come to see, he created Horcruxes out of objects belonging to three of the four Hogwarts founders, Mm -hmm. Hufflepuff's cup, Ravenclaw's diadem, Slytherin's locket, and wanted objects belonging to all four, certainly. He respects very little in life, but the founders and what they built is part of what he does respect. It's a testament to his appreciation for what they unlocked in his life. What's more, that phrasing, a stronghold of ancient magic, provides clues not just about Horcruxes themselves, but about where Voldemort will choose to store them. When Harry and Dumbledore get to the cave, Dumbledore will know it's the right place because, quote, it has known magic. Mm. Some of the locations will be symbolic. The Gaunt House, for instance, was a hovel, yes, but one that represented Tom Riddle's ties to the Slytherin line and also his first murder right down the way. Nagini also represented his connection to Slytherin. The cave, a natural landmark, sure, but a place where he came into his own magic and cruelty as a boy. Gringotts and Hogwarts, monuments to wizarding excellence. He seeks not only the objects, but the places that reinforce his sense of self-importance. We will discuss this at length over the ensuing chapters. Third from the book, again, as a teacher, he would have had great power and influence over young witches and Mm -hmm. wizards, inspired perhaps by the Slug Club. He saw fertile recruiting ground, bright young minds he could bend and poison to his will, to his cause, a ready-made army to train up and use. Here again is the idea that Voldemort doesn't actually care about bonds and friendship. He knows what his education meant to him, and as we've discussed, he values it inherently. Hogwarts' mission, or at least the Slytherin-approved parts of it. But think about where in the castle he found himself, in an actual secret chamber, in an unknowable room he thought he alone had discovered, with a teacher he actively worked to manipulate in books and research and its solo discovery. Hogwarts is an idea to him, an idea he cherishes, but it's also just another tool. But... He didn't get the job. (laughs) CV not up to snuff. Headmaster Dippet, it appears, wasn't as desperate to fill posts as our own Dumbly is. He told Tom that 18 was too young, but invited him to reapply in a few years, which will matter in mere pages. Dumbledore tells Harry that he felt, quote, deeply uneasy about the encouragement to revisit the conversation and that he had advised Dippet against the appointment. Quote, I did not want Lord Voldemort back at this school and especially not in a position of power. Dumbledore, as we have discussed, and we'll do so at greater length in Hallows and our Fantastic Beast discussion, did not trust himself around power, specifically sought out this particular life to avoid getting too close to that which tempted him sorely and had previously led him astray. So it's 
fascinating, utterly fascinating to hear him frame it like this. Yet another crucial reminder that context and choice matter so fully. At Hogwarts, Dumbledore was able to nurture his best instincts to share his gifts with those he truly did want to help. For Voldemort, it would have been like falling into a bale of catnip, fueling all of his worst tendencies, giving him access to that which he could corrupt. And which job did he want, Harry wonders? Defense against the dark arts, of course. What else could there be? Which, we learn, had been taught for nearly 50 years by Professor Mary Thought. Nearly 50 years. Not exactly the same as one new teacher every year. And so young Tom went to Borgen and Burke's. From the book and all the staff who had admired him and said what a waste it was, a brilliant young wizard like that working in a shop. But he wasn't just a shop boy. Charming, clever, and handsome, he was tasked with persuading people, quote, to part with their treasures. And, quote, he was, by all accounts, unusually gifted at doing this. (laughs) I'll bet he was, said Harry, unable to contain himself. Well, quite, said Dumbledore with a faint smile. I love that. (laughs) So they entered the memory of Hokey, who served an old rich witch named Hepziba Smith, and Hokey self is super old mm-hmm. elf. Yes. Doorbell rings, bringing the visitor. Hepziba is so eagerly awaiting. She's been putting on makeup and getting all scented up. All and can't done up. wait for this person to arrive. And who should it be? Tom Riddle. Longer hair, hollowed out cheeks, plain black suit. But, quote, he looked more handsome than ever. Good friend Tom, looking great. <laughs> and it's clear to Harry from the way Riddle enters this home and picks his way through, like, the piles of stuff that he's been here many times. And when he greets Hepziba, he kisses her hand. I brought you flowers, he said quietly, and she calls him a naughty boy, clearly delighted by the attentions of this handsome man. We see him run through his routine, playing out his part as the doting attendant there to extend an improved offer from his boss for the set of goblin-made armor. And he plays this part exceedingly well, flattering her ego. It's fascinating to see Voldemort, this figure of pure ego, willing to make himself seem subservient in order to achieve these goals. Uh Hepsiba says, I have something to show you that I've never shown Mr. Burke. Can you keep a secret, Tom? Will you promise you won't tell Mr. Burke I've got it? She says she's not selling, but that Tom would, quote, appreciate it for its history. Not how many galleons you can get for it. And boy, is she right about that. (laughs) His manipulation works so well in part because it's grounded in truth. The lie is his role as shop liaison. The reality is that he's using this as cover to hunt down treasures. The trophies that he's always loved, which he will use to store slivers of his own ravaged soul. Hepzibah has Hokey bring out two leather boxes. The first contains, quote, a small golden cup with two finely wrought handles. And as Tom lifts the cup, Harry, quote, thought he saw a red gleam in his dark eyes. Man, I get chills like every page of this chapter, every line. The lust, the greed, the beast beneath the man is already breaking through. Quote, his greedy expression was curiously mirrored on Hepzibah's face, except that her tiny eyes were fixed upon Voldemort's handsome features. This is such good writing, such good positioning of the characters. We understand fully what each of them wants. The cup features the engraving of a badger. Then this was Helga Hufflepuff's, as you very well know, you clever boy. She, we learn, is distantly descended from the founder, making this not only a priceless treasure, but a family heirloom. She says that the cup is supposed to possess, quote, all sorts of powers, but that she merely keeps it safe. And yet in her lust, in her affection, she is 
revealed it to the person hell-bent on deceiving her and retrieving it. As she takes it back, Harry observes a shadow crossing Tom Riddle's face. She opens the second box, confirming a suspicion growing at this point in readers' minds by saying that Burke knows she has this one because she bought it from him. It is, of course, Slytherin's locket. His mother's locket. His locket. Quote, Burke bought it apparently from a ragged-looking woman who seemed to have stolen it, but had no idea of its true value. She's talking about his mother. The passage continues. There was no mistaking it this time. Voldemort's eyes flashed scarlet at the words, and Harry saw his knuckles whiten on the locket's chain. Again, she mentions the powers attributed to it. As she takes the locket back and looks at him, she asks him, unnerved, Mm. if he's okay. I thought, but a trick of the light, I suppose. So good! It's interesting how, you know, his character has never really changed. People are drawn to him and want to impress him. Previously, it was because he's such a handsome, charming, obviously talented boy, and now it's because of the power that he wields. Dumbledore pulls Harry out of the memory and tells him that Hepzibah died two days after this, and that Hokey was convicted of poisoning her evening cocoa by accident. Surely, that, right? Yeah, of course. No way, said Harry angrily. Dumbledore, of course, agrees, noting the similarities between this and the riddle murders, with someone else taking the fall and confessing due to a modified memory. The ministry was predisposed to accept both claims, one from a criminal, the other from a house elf. It took Hepzibah's family some time to realize that the cup and the locket were gone, as she, quote, always guarded her collections most jealously. By the time they did, though, Riddle had vanished, resigned from Borgen and Burks, and not to be seen again for, quote, a very long time. Dumbledore says that he believes, though he doesn't know for sure, that this was Voldemort's first murder since killing the Riddles. He says, this time, as you will have seen, he killed not for revenge, but for gain. Harry says it's mad to risk his job for these items, perhaps the greatest sign yet of how much he still has to learn. Mm -hmm. As well as he knows Voldemort, as much as he sees the parallels between them and hunts for the differences with vigor, he can't yet think as Voldemort does. He's not able to put himself in Voldemort's shoes and understand why he does the things he does. And this is part of what Dumbledore is trying to do with these lessons. Not only what Voldemort sought to become, but why he did it. Right. He says, mad to you, perhaps, but not to Voldemort, said Dumbledore. I hope you will understand in due course exactly what those objects meant to him, Harry. But you must admit that it is not difficult to imagine that he saw the locket, at least, as rightfully his. Okay, he says, but why take Hufflepuff's cup? We don't blame Harry for this. It's so much to take in, a lot to wrap his arms around. But here he's forgetting a lot of what Dumbledore already told him about Voldemort's penchant for trophies, about his unrivaled attachment to the school, about his draw to strongholds of magic. We know enough already to understand why this brilliant boy chose to shirk all offers and head to Borgen and Burks after Hogwarts, that he's targeting her specifically, seeking out her treasures. Dumbledore says, it had belonged to another of Hogwarts' founders. I think he still felt a great pull toward the school and that he could not resist an object so steeped in Hogwarts history. There were other reasons, I think. I hope to be able to demonstrate them to you in due course. It's time for the final memory, at least until Harry gets the undisturbed recollection from Slughorn. This one takes place 10 years after Hokey's memory, quote, during which we can only guess at what Lord Voldemort was doing. Once again, This memory belongs to Dumbledore, and Harry lands in the same office he just left, only it's snowing outside. Dumbledore's face is less lined. There's a knock on the door, and as Dumbledore says enter, Harry gasps. Voldemort is walking in, but he's not there to attack. Dumbledore is very clearly expecting him. This meeting was arranged. 
This is stunning. We've seen Dumbledore and Voldemort interact, but never like this. Their first meeting in the orphanage was so charged. Dumbledore stumbling into Tom Riddle's life, confirming everything he thought about who he was and changing what he thought was possible. It was fraught in the way that only a meeting centered on identity and destiny can be. Their duel at the end of Order of the Phoenix was a crackling, Mm. awe-inspiring affair, a showcase of hatred and power. But other than snippets about Dumbledore keeping, quote, an annoyingly close watch, as Diary Riddle put it, we've barely seen or heard anything about their interactions in between those two poles. There have been hints, whispers, allusions, very little clarity, very little specificity. This here is a real illumination, a private moment glimpsed previously by no one but them. And Voldemort looks pretty rough. Not as fully transformed as the snake man who emerged from the cauldron in the graveyard and goblet, but no longer the handsome boy who charmed teachers and treasure collectors alike. Quote, it was as though his features had been burned and blurred. They were waxy and oddly distorted. His eyes aren't red and slit-like yet, but they're bloodied. This gave me chills. I know. Just trying to imagine him, it's just like eerie. And thinking about what he's been doing to get to that point. That made him into this. Yes. He is clearly already changing due to the transformations that he's undergone on what we will soon learn is his quest for immortality. He's less human than he was, but he's still not fully a beast. Dumbledore immediately appeals to whatever humanity might be left. Good evening, Tom, he says. (laughs) Won't you sit down? Another Tom instance here, just like at the orphanage, just like during their ministry duel, just like as always. Dumbledore is the rare wizard who's unafraid to say the name Voldemort, and yet he never gives the Dark Lord the satisfaction of saying it to his face. Here, we see the resentment play out. After praising Dumbledore's appointment as headmaster, a worthy choice, he says, Mm. albeit an inconvenient one for him, and accepting a goblet of wine after his journey, Voldemort responds to the next utterance of his given name. So, Tom, to what do I owe the pleasure? With... (laughs) deliberation, sipping his wine before saying, this gives me a chill. (sighs) I don't know how to say it any other way. This gives me a chill. They do not call me Tom anymore. These days I am known as, to which Dumbledore says, I'm well aware, my guy, (laughs) but you'll always be Tom to me. Quote, it is one of the irritating things about old teachers. I am afraid that they never quite forget their charges, youthful beginnings. This is an absolute masterclass from Dumbledore. The same kind of room working that Voldemort himself often does. His words here, at once playing sincerely on the surface, but jammed, jammed with meaning and subtext. Meaning and subtext, by the way, that Dumbledore fully intends for Voldemort to spot. It's a sunning. It's like when your dad says, I brought you into this world. That's literally (laughs) what he's saying. This is a declaration that Dumbledore will not cow to this self-made madman, will not heed his honorifics or fuel his sense of self-importance. It is a reminder that Dumbledore knew him when, knew him before he fashioned himself a new name and a new image and a new mission. And the irony is deliciously rich. As Dumbledore told Harry, he never told others at Hogwarts what he'd seen and heard at the orphanage because he wanted to give young Tom a chance to become something else here, now, Dumbledore is reminding him that he's one of the few people alive who has that ability to remember who Tom Riddle was before and to try to stop Voldemort from becoming something else now. Quote, Harry felt the atmosphere in the room change Mm. subtly. Dumbledore's refusal to use Voldemort's chosen name was a refusal to allow Voldemort to dictate the terms of the meeting. And Harry could tell that Voldemort took it as such. Voldemort doesn't push, but rather notes his surprise 
that Dumbledore is still at school. I've always wondered why a wizard such as yourself never wished to leave school, he says. Neither Voldemort, Harry, nor the reader yet knows the truth behind this, but we'll learn much more about that in time, about Dumbledore's relationship to power and the heartache in his family that drove him towards his current path. We'll presumably learn even more about this in the remaining Fantastic Beast movies, too, and we now have to wonder, in light of the Nagini reveal, whether Voldemort maybe did know something about Dumbledore's past? It's worth at least asking. It's worth at least thinking right? about. Very, very interesting. Dumbledore shares nothing here about Ariana or Grindelwald or the Hallows. He's decades away from some coming again to the pull he'll feel when he discovers the ring. He says just that there's nothing more important than molding young minds. And that, if he recalls, Tom once saw the attraction to. I see it still, Voldemort says. He says that he's returned later than expected, but returned nonetheless for what Dippet once told him he was too young, once upon a time, to have. He says, I have come to you to ask that you permit me to return to this castle to teach. I think you must know that I have seen and done much since I left this place. I could show and tell your students things they can gain from no other wizard. (laughs) That is true. And this is quite a strategy, not running away from the shadowy work he's doing, but actually embracing it, leaning into it. He can't think for a moment that this will work. Right. Sure enough, Dumbledore says, Rumors of your doings have reached your old school, Tom. I should be sorry to believe half of them. Here again, we enter the realm of the uncertain, the cloudy, the veiled. But even back at this point in time, Dumbledore knew enough to fear what Tom Riddle would become. Every single line in this memory is perfect. Just the way that she writes them. Voldemort's ready to push back against this. Must have known, given that his whole game was to fashion himself a name wizards, quote, everywhere would one day fear to speak. That word of his experiments and efforts would spread. That the legend, the myth would spread. Though, as we'll see momentarily, he had no idea how far and how quickly it had spread or how much, in other words, Dumbledore already knew. Quote, greatness inspires envy. Envy engenders spite. Spite spawns lies. This is his most overtly Star Wars line, by the way. You must know this, Dumbledore. You call it greatness, what you have been doing, do you? Certainly, Voldemort replies, and his eyes are burning red at this point. I have experimented. I have pushed the boundaries of magic further, perhaps, than they have ever been pushed. Now, he may be speaking of countless horrors here. But as we'll learn when Harry secures Slughorn's true memory, he's undoubtedly at least speaking about his horcruxes and the seven-part soul split that he is pursuing. Quote, of some kinds of magic, Dumbledore corrected him quietly, of some, of others you remain, Mm -hmm. forgive me, woefully ignorant. He is talking as he so often does, as he so often will with Harry, about love. Yes. And Voldemort actually smiles in reply, so amused. He's just absolutely dismissive so of this dismissive idea. So dismissive is he, by what he perceives as an utterly foolish view yes. on not only magic, but life existence. Quote, it was a taut, leer, and evil thing, more threatening than a look of rage. He calls it Dumbledore's, quote, old argument and famous pronouncement, but says that he's seen nothing <laughs> to support that love is more powerful than, and this is harrowing, quote, my kind of magic. (laughs) Dumbledore's reply here is devastating. Perhaps you've been looking in the wrong places. It is incredible to see what he does here with that line, how he applies one line, one idea that fits every single person in the world at one time or another in our lives 
to the man across from him who is so wholly determined to set himself apart. You know, who among us hasn't sought and failed to find love at some point? Which of us hasn't craved Mm -hmm. that healing, sustaining force? Harry will have his moments of pushing back against this idea, too. The times when he feels that this explanation is in some way inadequate for arming him for the task at hand. But ultimately— Love is where he'll find his strength and his courage and his edge. It's what saved him as a baby. It's what will allow him to triumph in the end. And we see here unambiguously that it's what Voldemort has always and always will dismiss. Voldemort tries, despite this fundamental divide, to play the game one last time. Why not let me start looking for it here at Hogwarts? He says, will you let me return? You let me share my knowledge with your students. I place myself and my talents at your disposal. I am yours to command. (laughs) Voldemort, of course, has never been anyone's to command, not even as a boy, though he's willing to play that role if it furthers his goals. Our first introduction to him showed us how uncommonly in control of his powers he was, and he showed a preternatural instinct to use that control to manipulate others, to hurt them. His Chamber of Secrets plot at school centered on him commanding a beast of legend. The diary he left behind contained not only a part of his soul, as we learned, but instructions, orders, edicts for those who would follow him. We saw in Slughorn's memory how he had already had a band of admiring followers, and Dumbledore mentions those followers here. And what will become of those whom you command? What will happen to those who call themselves, or so rumor has it, the Death Eaters? And Harry can tell that Voldemort is shocked to learn that Dumbledore knows about these people and knows what they're called. He says his friends will carry on without him. I'm glad to hear that you consider them friends, said Dumbledore. I was under the impression that they are more in the order of servants. Dumbledore, as he said to Harry before, does not believe for a second that Voldemort really thinks these people are his friends. Believes, in fact, that Voldemort is incapable of caring for other people or even desirous of friendship at all, Mm -hmm. companionship on any level. You are mistaken, Voldemort tells him. Dumbledore, who's clearly been ready for this exact part of this conversation— Ready to well actually everything Voldemort says today reveals that he knows exactly which Death Eaters are staying there, and he names them. Knows that they're in fact at the hogshead from the book. There could be no doubt that Dumbledore's detailed knowledge of those with whom he was traveling was even less welcome to Voldemort. It's such a flex. Incredible flex. incredible. Dumbledore is clearly as adept at playing these games, at running through these machinations as Voldemort is, but he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to conduct himself this way, and so he gets down to brass tacks. Quote, let us speak openly. Why have you come here tonight, surrounded by henchmen, to request a job we both know you do not want? (laughs) This is so good. Voldemort pushes back. On the contrary, Dumbledore, I want it very much. And we know that in his own way, that is true. As we just explored, he wants access to the castle's magic, to the founder's heirlooms, to a ready-made army there for him to shape. And Dumbledore says pretty much just that. You want to be here, sure, but not to teach. Quote, why not try an open request for once? Well, he can't very well say he wants to make horcruxes and hide them in the school, and so instead he pouts. If you don't want to give me a job, of course I don't said Dumbledore, and I don't think for a moment you expected me to. Nevertheless, you came here, you asked, you must have had a purpose. Indeed, as we will realize in Hallows, while he failed to get anything that once belonged to Gryffindor, though we can assume that he wanted the sword, he used this entry into the school to hide Ravenclaw's lost diadem in the Room of Requirement. This is your final word, he says. It is, said Dumbledore, also standing. Then we have nothing more to say Mm. to each other. 
this reply is just devastating. No, nothing, said Dumbledore, and a great sadness filled his face. The time is long gone when I could frighten you with a burning wardrobe and force you to make repayments for your crimes. <laughs> but I wish I could, Tom. I wish I could. And he means it. He does mean it. He has never wanted to give up on this boy, just like he never wanted to give up on Snape and probably never wanted to give up on Grindelwald. Mm-hmm. We're looking forward to finding out much more about that. He himself got that second chance. But this is one of the series' foundational parting of the ways, a turning point that we now see clearly from which there can be no return. A stark, crystallized declaration of intent on both sides. Harry believes that Voldemort's going for his wand, but his hand only twitches. The memory concludes. Back in the present day, Harry asks why he came, asks what it was that Voldemort wanted. Dumbledore says he has ideas, but that he won't share them at this particular moment. But he'll share them when Harry secures Slughorn's memory, when they're ready, that is, to really talk about the Horcruxes. From the book, when you have that last piece of the jigsaw, everything will, I hope, be clear to both of us. He asks, in conclusion, whether Voldemort still wanted the defense against the dark arts job. As to that, Dumbledore is quite sure. Oh, he definitely wanted the defense against the dark arts job, said Dumbledore. The aftermath of our little meeting proved that. You see, we have never been able to keep a defense against the dark arts teacher for longer than a year since I refused the post to Lord Voldemort. Clarity at last for the eternal revolving door at defense and foreshadowing, of course, for Snape's book six end. Chapter 21, The Unknowable Room. Harry's still searching, but failing to find clarity for how to get Slughorn to cough up the memory, which he now refers to in his internal monologue (laughs) as the most important thing. (laughs) Got there at last. (laughs) He's still poring over the prince's book, looking for inspiration anywhere he can, and he spots an intriguing spell, Sectum Sempra. For enemies. <laughs> I love that right after this, it says he was about to experiment with it, but Hermione was there. No, like, like, <laughs> would he have just fucking used this on like Neville? <laughs> Neville's arm falls off. <laughs> Good lord. It is incredible that this spell. And the idea of a crying boy in the bathroom are introduced in the same chapter. JK is so good. Harry folds over the corner of this page, marking it for future experimentation. Don't want to lose track of the spell marked for enemies. Hermione tells him that searching the book for help, looking for a potion or some other tip from the prince, as he is, is a waste of time. Quote, only you can get the memory, Dumbledore says. That must mean you can persuade Slughorn where other people can't. Correct. Just as they're winding down their homework and Harry is winding down his potions book perusal, a crack splits the common room. It's Creature and then Dobby. And they're there with their first Malfoy report and plenty of bickering to boot. Mm -hmm. This goes over about as poorly as anticipated with Hermione, who did not know that Harry had set the elves this task and who is rightly horrified to hear the following. Night and day, croaked Creature, when explaining how they've been tailing Malfoy. Dobby has not slept for a week, Harry Potter, said Dobby proudly, swaying where he stood. Harry clarifies that they're allowed to sleep, then asks for the dirt. Thanks, Harry. Creature starts by talking about Draco's wonderful bone structure. Oh, those pure bloods, those genes, which upsets Dobby, who long suffered abuse at the Malfoy's hands. Harry halts Creature's gush fest so that Dobby can give a more efficient report. Draco's not breaking any rules, but... He is keen to avoid detection, Dobby says. From the book, he's been making regular visits to the seventh floor with a variety of the other students who keep watch for him while he enters 
The room will require it, said Harry, smacking himself hard on the forehead with advanced potion making. He pieces together that this is why Malfoy keeps disappearing off the Marauder's map. He's never spotted the room of requirement on the map before, he realizes. Ron posits that the Marauders didn't know about the room and thus couldn't map it. Hermione suspects it's part of the room's magic. She says, if you need it to be unplottable, it will be. And this is thrilling news for Harry, not only because it's clarity at last regarding where Draco's been going for his secret work, but because it gives Harry hope of discovering more. Malfoy got into the DA's headquarters last year, so Harry believes he'll be able to get in in time to bust Draco. Hermione believes otherwise. Malfoy, she reminds him, knew exactly what they were using the room for because of that shameful snitch. (laughs) Scarred for life, Marietta Edgecombe. And so he was able to make a specific enough request to get the room to deliver up what he needed. She continues, but you don't know what the room becomes when Malfoy goes in there, so you don't know what to ask it to transform into. Hermione, it's a marvel here, once again, showing that her brilliance comes from far more than memorizing textbooks and studying hard. She understands magical theory, magical principles, magical philosophies, and synergizes them in a truly creative way. She's elite. Harry is overjoyed and eager to discuss this breakthrough with Ron and Hermione, who notes— that the details about lots of other students seems quite odd. Wouldn't Malfoy want to keep all of this quiet? And then Harry recalls Malfoy telling Crab that this whole thing wasn't his business. Quote, so what's he telling all these? All these? You can like literally see the light bulbs yeah. popping into existence above Harry's head in this section. He trails off as the truth dawns on him at last. Polyjuice. Quote, God, I've been so stupid, he said quietly. It's obvious, isn't it? There was a great vat of it down in the dungeon. He could have nicked some any time during that lesson. There aren't numerous students, Harry's realizing. It's just Crab and Goyle, a.k.a. the small girls they keep seeing. The ones Harry saw before the Quidditch match, the girl with the toad spawn, the girl whose scales Hermione repaired. Malfoy couldn't risk his two best mates being seen in the same spot time and time again. That would be a tell. The drop scales and the toad spawn, Harry realizes, weren't accidents, but rather warnings to tell Malfoy the coast was not clear. Stay in the room. Ron can't believe that they've agreed to behave that way. But thinking about it here, when exactly have Crab and Goyle been anything but followers, right? Now, we'll see to dire effect what happens when Crab decides to branch out a little bit in Deathly Alice. Harry says that they'd fall right in line if Malfoy showed them his dark mark. And here, he loses his friends again. They were so briefly on the same page. Hmm, the dark mark we don't know exists, Hermione says. We'll see said Harry confidently. Yes, we will. Now, Hermione is wrong about this. Look, it was bound to happen eventually, about something. But she's right about something else. Harry can't afford to get distracted. He's supposed to be prioritizing Slughorn's memory. Harry's so hyped he cannot sleep. What's in there? He wonders from the book. A meeting place, a hideout, a storeroom, a workshop. Bing, 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 bing. From the book again, Harry's mind worked feverishly in his dreams when he finally fell asleep or broken and disturbed by images of Malfoy, who turned into Slughorn, who turned into Snape. The Slughorn guilt now creeping in. The next day, Harry's committed to trying to get into the room and is pissed at Hermione for being so dismissive of this, thinking she could be quite helpful. After a distressing breakfast full of arguments and news that Dung... Mundungus has been sent to Azkaban for impersonating an infurious, which is fucking insane, in order to rob a house. I mean, listen, he's an innovator. <laughs> Takes advantage of the moment. Say that for Dung. <laughs> so what, what did he just ring a bell? It's like, infuri here. <laughs> 
Also, a nine-year-old imperious boy was arrested for trying to kill his grandparents. Horrible. Harry heads solo to the seventh floor corridor opposite the tapestry of Barnabas the Barmy teaching trolls to do ballet. He's under his invisibility cloak, but the corridor is deserted. From the book, concentrating with all his might, he thought, I need to see what Malfoy is doing in here. No dice. He tries a slight twist. I need to see the place where Malfoy keeps coming secretly, but has no more luck. Next, I need you to become the place you become for Draco Malfoy. Again, nothing. From the book, Harry tried every variation of, I need to see what Draco Malfoy is doing inside you that he could think of, which, I mean, ask Pansy? <laughs> then it would just be like a thrusting. That phrasing is, woo. After an hour of failure, he set off annoyed and is late for defense, which Snape is, of course, all too happy to note. Tough lesson with Snape. He collects their Dementor essays and shits on their prior essays on resisting the Imperious Curse, both subjects that Harry knows a ton about, by the way. Kind of fun to think about how advanced he is in the areas that Snape is now teaching them. And Seamus, dear sweet Seamus, asks, if Snape can explain to them the difference between an Inferius and a ghost— Snape hand-waves this, saying the so-called Inferius that they write about was nothing but, quote, a smelly sneak thief by the name of Mundungus Fletcher, which, naturally, gets Harry's attention. As he's never one to miss an opportunity to latch onto anything that might cloud Snape's status as a loyal Dumbledore man. Snape and Dung are both part of the order. Shouldn't Snape be upset that Dung is now in jail? Snape catches Harry muttering and uses it to put Harry on blast. Potter seems to have a lot to say on the subject. Harry thinks back to what Dumbledore told him about Inferi, and then a truly savage dunk fest ensues. Harry says, eh, well, ghosts are transparent. Oh, very good, interrupted Snape, his lips curling. Yes, it is easy to see that nearly six years of magical education have not been wasted on you, Potter. Ghosts are transparent. Tough stuff here. Harry adds that inferior dead bodies and thus solid, and Snape says a five-year-old would know as much, and then Ron comes to Harry's defense earning some dunks of his own. When we come face-to-face with one down a dark alley, we're going to have a shufty to see if it's solid, aren't we? We're not going to be asking, excuse me, are you the imprint of a departed soul? To which Snape says, I would expect nothing more sophisticated from you, Ronald Weasley. The boy's so solid he cannot apparate half an inch across the room. (laughs) Horrible! This self-esteem shredding exchange finds Harry and Ron in the boys' bathroom where Ron's debating whether it's even worth him taking the test. Harry's giving him a pep talk, guess who appears? It's Moaning Myrtle. Oh, it's you two. Now remember, Myrtle is hot for Harry, which is troubling in numerous ways. (laughs) She's usually overjoyed to see him. Her reacting this way is notable. Who was she expecting to see? Ron asks. Nobody. He said he'd come back and see me. She notes how much they had in common. When you say you had lots in common, said Ron, sounding rather amused now, do you mean he lives in a nest bed too? I love it. (laughs) Let me just note here that Ron Weasley, who in this stretch of chapters has trouble spelling his name. <laughs> Sp- it's the Quill's fault. I don't care. He did not notice. <laughs> not noticing it is very tough. <laughs> not noticing that every single word of your essay is misspelled is very tough, including... The title and your name. The title and your name is extremely tough. You'd think you'd notice that. Anyway, I just like that Ron Weasley, who had trouble recognizing that his name was spelled hilariously wrong, knows the specific name of a plumbing pipe used in a toilet. 
I mean, you got to think that Arthur spends a lot of time talking about various muggle plumbing inventions, types of pipes. She says the boy in question is sensitive, just like her. People bully him, too, and he feels lonely and hasn't got anybody to talk to. And he's not afraid to show his feelings and cry. That catches Harry's attention. Was the crying boy young, he wonders. And before Harry can get any more intel, Ron blows it. I promised I wouldn't tell anyone, and I'll take his secret to the... Not the grave, surely, said Ron with a snort. The sewers, maybe. Fucking insensitive, dude. Unbelievable, this guy. If you look back at all of Ron's interactions with ghosts, they are very very fraught. We will soon learn that the boy in question is Draco Malfoy, driven to despair by his failure to date to fix the cabinet and the crushing weight of trying to fulfill the task that Voldemort has set him. Draco knows that his life is on the line, but more than that, he knows that his family's lives are too. In setting Draco the task to punish Lucius in the first place, mm-hmm. Voldemort also, by definition, opened a portal for secondhand redemption. The fate of the family is on Draco's shoulders, and so far he's failing, unsure of how to advance or of whom he can even ask for help. We know he didn't confide in Snape. We know he wasn't telling Crabbe and Goyle more than where to stand. We know that he didn't want his own mother following him to Borgen and Burks. He is alone, and it's breaking him, leading him to seek comfort, not in other living beings, but in an imprint, in the dead. When Hermione, Ron, and others who are turning 17 in time for the test set off for Hogsmeade, Harry intends to try the room of requirement again, though Hermione implores him to focus on Slughorn instead. So he tells her he's been trying, and he has lagging behind in potions, but failing to get Slug, who's now evading him, going to Slug's office, though failing to get him to open the door. Once Ron and Hermione set off, Harry consults the map, spies Goyle alone. He has to be standing guard over the room. The room must be open. Harry rushes over and spies Goyle, a.k.a. the girl with the scales, and he whispers into his slash her ear, pretending, invisible as he is, that he's a ghost. Goyle shrieks, drops the scales, and flees. Harry laughs, knowing Malfoy is now inside, frozen in fear. From the book, it gave Harry a most agreeable feeling of power. How Voldemortian of him, right? (laughs) But no new combo of demand works, and in frustration, he kicks out, hurting his toe, leading the cloak to slip off as he hops in pain. At which point, Tonks calls out to him. What you doing here? She's supposed to be guarding Hogsmeade, right? She's there, she says, to see Dumbledore. And Harry, channeling his inner floor, has the following thought. Quote, Harry thought she looked terrible. (laughs) Thinner than usual, her mouse-colored hair lank. Oh, she's tongs. She looks so haggard and tired. I wonder why, Bill. Do you wonder why? She says Dumbledore's not there. He's gone away again. Cave hunting, we will realize soon. Harry asks Tonks if she knows where Dumbledore goes, which is wholesome. She's there for news, she says, clearly anxious that someone, we will realize, Lupin in time, might be hurt. And she asks Harry if he's gotten any letters from anyone in the Order. And when he starts to say that he hasn't gotten any letters from anyone in the Order since Sirius died, her eyes fill with tears. I'm sorry, he muttered awkwardly. I mean, I miss him as well. What? said Tonks blankly, as though she had not heard him. Well, I'll see you around, Harry. For now, at least. Harry still awaits clarity on the source of Tonks' ills, but it's sweet to see him try to engage her, try to support her. And considering that earlier in the book he couldn't even speak of Sirius to anyone but Dumbledore, it's a real sign of how he's continuing to grow and mature. Never shedding his grief, of course, but learning slowly to process it, to carry it. When Harry sees Ron and Hermione after their return from Hogsmeade for apparition practice, he voices a thought. You don't think she can have been, you know, in love with Sirius? 
he started to wonder if Tonks's four-legged Patronus, the one Snape said had changed, had become serious. Harry's so close here. It's Lupin, not serious. Chapter 22 after the burial. You know how we keep turning for strength to the prince's book jacket? Quote, as in all wars, life goes online. Mm-hmm. Well, not everyone. Aragog, R.I.P. Phoenix tears and song for my guy Aragog. Clicking pincers for our guy Aragog. <laughs> and Hagrid, of course, is despondent. I didn't run you, man. You know how he was. Yeah, he tried to <laughs> fucking kill us, he jerk. He asked them via tear-soaked letter to come down that evening for the burial. Well, not my catfish alone. Ron's apoplectic that Hagrid thinks that they'd fucking care. Aragog, as I just mentioned, told his family to eat Ron and Harry. Hermione's stunned that Hagrid's asking them to risk their safety and breaking the rules to go see him at night. Remember, there's a war on, and he wants them to go outside at night. She also wants to make sure Harry's planning on taking advantage of the near-empty potions lesson he'll face that day, with most of the class off at their apparition tests. Quote, 57th time lucky, you think, said Harry, bitterly. Lucky, said Ron suddenly. Harry, that's it. Get lucky. What do you mean? Use your lucky potion. Bing, 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 bing. Now, surely after racking his brain for how to get the memory from Slughorn, Harry will be overjoyed by this revelation. From the book again. I don't know. I was sort of saving it. Like, for what, my guy? (laughs) What? Literally a joke we'd make on binge mode, Ginny. (laughs) Thankfully, though, he relents. If he can't get through to Slug that lesson, he'll take the Felix that night. With so few in potions class, Slughorn sets them a fun task. Brew something amusing. Cheered by Malfoy's thin gray physical appearance, which Harry takes as a sign that Malfoy's mission must be going poorly, he settles on brewing an elixir to induce euphoria, which fits the task and also seems likely to cheer Slug ahead of Harry's ask. Harry crushes the potion thanks to his prince-aided peppermint sprig, but Slug dodges him before Harry can try to convince him to actually sample any. Maybe Harry should have saved some of the potion for Ron, who failed his apparition test after leaving half an eyebrow behind. Hermione, of course, passed. They discuss the latest failed slug attempt, and Harry agrees that it's clear the moment for new action has come. He will take a sip of Felix, just enough for two to three hours worth Mm. of luck, saving the rest, which will become crucial as it will help his friends stay alive when the Death Eaters invade. He takes a careful, measured gulp. Quote, Slowly but surely, an exhilarating sense of infinite opportunity stole through him. He felt as though he could have done anything, anything at all. And getting the memory from Slughorn seemed suddenly not only possible, but positively easy. At which point he announces that he's going down to Hagrid's. Ron and Hermione sputter out there, what's in there? No, Harry! But the Felix Felices has given Harry newfound clarity, as he says, with confidence. Got a good feeling about going to Hagrid's, guys. Ron asks if he's ingested essence of insanity instead, but Harry's a chuckling ball of certainty. He says, I know what I'm doing, or at least Felix does. Puts on his invisibility cloak, down the stairs to the common room, Ron and Hermione following. They run into Lav Lav, who can't see Harry, just her boyfriend and his true love coming down from his bedroom. Felix is putting in the work, baby! Uh-huh. As Harry approaches the portrait hole, he doesn't need to wait for anyone to open it. Ginny's entering with Dean. Harry accidentally brushes her as he climbs out between them, leading Ginny to exclaim, Don't push me, please, Dean! Felix putting in the work overtime, baby! Love the hustle, Felix! From the book, his feeling of elation increasing, Harry sets off, meeting no one in the hallways. He doesn't know why it's right to go to Hagrid's, just that it is. The potion isn't showing him the endgame exactly, but rather illuminating step by step. When he reaches the front door of the castle, he sees that Filch forgot to lock it. So apparently Felix makes Harry lucky and makes Filch a moronic liability, putting the entire castle in peril. Great. As Harry walks, 
he decides to go visit the vegetable patch. Not on the way exactly, but on Felix's path at least. And there he finds Slughorn in conversation with Sprout. Harry waits and listens to the pair. Sprout is clipping a plant for Slughorn, who's thanking her for doing so at twilight, the most desirable hour. Have these two fucked? (laughs) That's my new question. (laughs) As soon as Sprout leaves, Harry reveals himself to Slughorn. Merlin's beard, Harry, you made me jump. He explains about the door and Slug vows to report Filch. Yet another bonus point for Mr. Felicis. Slughorn asks why Harry's out, and Harry tells him he's off to support Hagrid. But you won't tell anyone, Professor. I don't want trouble for him. Felix is helping Harry play on Slughorn's vulnerabilities. He's curious and will, of course, want Harry to bring him into his confidence. Telling him means appealing to another weakness, the goodies he loves so much. Mm. Acromantula venom, you see. Delicious. Immensely valuable. Slughorn's heard rumors of their presence near Hogwarts, but this clarifies the reality for him. As Harry tells Slughorn he wants to provide Hagrid with company, Slug says, touching, touching, clearly strategizing, counting the galleons in his mind. This is Felix's alignment of variables, helping Harry win with what he already possesses, his cloak, information, and his own charm, his own ability to sway. Slughorn's muttering to himself, seems an awful waste not to collect it, might get a hundred galleons a pint. To be frank, my salary is not large. (laughs) Passage continues, and now Harry saw clearly what was to be done. He invites Slughorn to Hagrid's, telling him how pleased Hagrid would be to give Aragog a better send-off. The subtext is clear. Come get your venom, too, under the cover of kindness. You know what they call it when you get laid on Felix Felicis? Felicio. <laughs> Slug goes off for a bottle or two of booze to, quote, drink the poor beasts. Well, not health, but we'll send it off in style. Harry <laughs> arrives and Hagrid, puffy-eyed and wearing a rag dipped in boot polish, deeply moved. Harry's lamenting that he can't bury Aragog in the forest, or indeed go anywhere near Aragog's old cleric. As it turns out, the other spiders are murderous and would like to kill Hagrid. And we're only holding off on eating him because Aragog was like, that's my guy. Please don't eat him. (laughs) Hagrid, to whom clarity about the true nature of even the most dangerous beasts rarely comes, and if then, late, is stunned. Harry, sensing an opening as Hagrid weeps, mentions that Slug is on his way, and that rather than punishing Harry upon discovering him, he decided to come drink to Aragog's memory, and Hagrid is moved. It's all working for Harry so far. Slug arrives and issues his sympathies, asking to see... Quote the poor creature, Hagrid takes him outside to where he plans to bury Aragog beyond the pumpkin patch. Magnificent, Slughorn says. Quote, Harry thought he heard the tinkle of bottles as Slughorn bent over the pincers, apparently examining the enormous hairy head. Hagrid naturally has no idea that Slughorn is appreciating what Aragog's going to do for his purse. And he says, it's not everyone appreciates how beautiful they are. They're bonding, though, softening the mood, ripening Harry's mark. Slughorn offers to say a few words, the highlight of which is, though your body will decay, your spirit lingers on. I love the way that's delivered in the movie. It's great. Haggard, deeply touched by this beautiful eulogy, collapses into sobs, and Harry and Slughorn help him inside for a drink. Slughorn assures them that he's had the booze thoroughly checked this time for poison. Checked by house elves. Yikes. Slughorn and Hagrid drink deeply, but the Felix tells Harry to keep a clear head. No alcohol for him, for once in this book. As Hagrid reminisces about Aragog, Slughorn spots unicorn hair, 
also worth a fortune draped about the hut and begins searching for other treasures that he can take. And as Slughorn and Hagrid discuss the creatures in the forest, the Felix nudges Harry, who, though he'd yet to previously master the refilling charm without saying the incantation aloud, knows that he'll be able to do it tonight and non-verbally fills the bottles to keep the libations flowing. Love that after all this, his strategy basically boiled down to get him drunk. Yeah, I mean, it's like, wow, (laughs) incredible shit. (laughs) Take him to any bar. Slughorn and Hagrid are deeply in their cups at this point, making toast to Dumbledore and Hogwarts and elf-made wine and Harry. Perry Otter! (laughs) The chosen boy who wells something of that sort! (laughs) Hagrid gives Slughorn the unicorn hair, and Slughorn cries out to friendship and generosity and ten galleons of hair, and then arms around each (laughs) other. They sing a slow, sad song about a dying young wizard named Odo. Odo, my guy Odo. Ah, the good die young. Hagrid mutters after this mournful ballad, me dad with nowhere to go. Nowhere my mom and dad, Harry. Hagrid begins to cry again as he heaps praise on Lily and James. Terrible thing, terrible thing. And then he falls asleep. Not blacks out. I'll note. He's never done that. He's only fallen asleep. (laughs) Slunghorn stops singing, thinking Hagrid's, quote, terrible was meant for him. Harry and Felix correct him. Quote, Hagrid wasn't talking about your singing, said Harry quietly. He was talking about my mom and dad dying. Slughorn, looking awkward as he refills their glasses, asks Harry if he remembers the night his parents died. What plays out is another example of Rowling's unrivaled plotting and pacing. Every prior mention of Lily played in the moment as a possible stumbling block for Harry, revealing the true source of his potion's prowess. But it was all leading to this. Lily's love once again helping Harry to emerge victorious. He says, no, well, I was only one when they died, said Harry, his eyes on the flame of the candle flickering in Hagrid's heavy snores. But I found out pretty much what happened since my dad died first. Did you know that? Slughorn says, no. Yeah, Voldemort murdered him and then stepped over his body toward my mom. Slughorn is looking horrified now, but he also is fascinated by this. He told her to get out of the way, said Harry remorselessly. He told me she needn't have died. He only wanted me. She could have run. That word remorselessly. That is, of course, not how Harry feels. His parents' death has defined his life, left him looking for the family that Voldemort deprived him of. It's not that he's using them here. It's not that cold. It's that he's finding one more way for them to help him and protect him, relying on the marks they left on others to help him make a mark of his own in the here and now. Slughorn, who loved Lily, who had real affection for her, is barely able to choke out a sentence at this point. Oh, dear, he says. She could have. She needn't. That's awful. It is, isn't it, said Harry, in a voice barely more than a whisper. But she didn't move. Dad was already dead, but she didn't want me to go, too. She tried to plead with Voldemort, but he just laughed. That's enough, said Slughorn suddenly. Harry's lack of remorse here isn't for his parents. It's for Slughorn. It's for the situation. It's for the sake of the mission, for the weight of what he's carrying and the urgency of what he must achieve. This is what Dumbledore meant when he said Harry alone could do this. Harry is calling upon the source of Lily's love to save him yet again. He sees clearly at last how to get there. I forgot, lied Harry. Felix Felicis leading him on. You liked her, didn't you? And Slughorn's eyes fill with tears as he professes how taken he was with Lily. He's putting the ball on the tee for Harry, who rubs some Felix rosin on the bat, chokes up, and swings. <laughs> this is a all-time line right here. But you won't help her son, said Harry. 
She gave me her life, but you won't give me a memory. This is gorgeously written and absolutely agonizing. It's painfully wrought. The rare line in fiction that makes you feel the scope of a character's emotion and ambition and the scope of your own as well. Slughorn has been honest about his desires to stay alive, to stay indulgent. He's a brilliant man and a kind one in his way. But his self-interest and his shame have come to rule him. This line from Harry cuts through his fear, clarifying the stakes. This isn't about him. This is about something so much bigger. This is about finding the courage to help other people, to do unto others. Slughorn begs Harry not to speak this way. If it were a question of helping him, he would. But what purpose can be served? This is a last-ditch effort here, not even to hide from Harry, but to hide from himself, to run from the truth of the damage that he did that day. If what he told Tom Riddle can help Harry and Dumbledore... That means it must really have helped Voldemort mm-hmm. as much as Slughorn has spent the ensuing decades fearing. Felix urges Harry to say the words that he knows will seal it, the words that Slughorn won't remember when he wakes from his drink-induced slumber. I am the chosen one. I have to kill him. I need that memory. Slughorn knows a brief moment of panic if this is true. Harry's asking him to aid in a murder attempt. Well, welcome to war, Horace. Yeah. Harry stays on the path lit by a precursor to the silver dough, the golden potion. You don't want to get rid of the wizard who killed Lily Evans, he says. Slughorn is afraid, and Harry can see it. And he tries to give him some of Lily's courage. Be brave like my mother, Professor, he says. And Slughorn begins to weep, the shame overcoming him. I am not proud, he says. I am ashamed of what, of what that memory shows. I think I may have done great damage that day. And Harry tells him that this is his chance to undo that, to strike one for the side of good. And slowly Slughorn reaches for his wand and then for one of the files that he brought to collect the venom. Felix working again. He withdraws the memory, looking into Harry's eyes, Lily's eyes, as he does so. You're a good boy, said Professor Slughorn, tears trickling down his fat cheeks into his walrus mustache. <laughs> it makes me cry every time. And you've got her eyes. Just don't think too badly of me once you've seen it. Ooh. Chapter 23, Horcruxes. Clarity at last. The truth. The memory that Dumbledore had called the most important of all. And what secrets lay there in Slughorn's head? Back in the school, the Felix wearing off, Harry learns from Nick that Dumbledore has returned. It's after midnight. Harry goes right to Dumbledore's chambers, and Dumbledore is stunned by the lateness of the hour and Harry's call. But Harry is euphoric. Sir, I've got it. I've got the memory from Slughorn. Dumbledore pauses a moment, then breaks out at a huge smile. He is thrilled. He gets the pensive out, pours in the memory. And he says, and now, now at last we shall see. And he falls into the familiar scene. The younger Slughorn, Riddle, with the ring already in his hand, the same initial exchange plays out about Professor Merrythout. Tom's rare knowledge, the first difference comes when Slughorn follows the flattery and pineapple line, not with a scornful warning, but fog-free now with praise. From the book, I confidently expect you to rise to Minister of Magic within 20 years. 15, if you keep sending me pineapple. I have excellent contacts at the ministry. Riddle says he doesn't have the right background for politics, and the admiring boys exchange knowing looks about their leader's famous founding ancestor. Slug dismisses this bashfulness with more overt praise and encouragement. Nonsense, said Slughorn briskly. Couldn't be plainer you come from decent wizarding stock. 
abilities like yours. No, you'll go far, Tom. I've never been wrong about a student yet. But surely he's not just running from this, right? Plenty of people were taken with and taken by Tom Riddle. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't feel good, but it wouldn't be enough to work this hard to hide. There must be more. And sure enough, here it comes. As the clock strikes 11 and the other students go, Tom stays behind to enter into the now familiar exchange. Sir, I wanted to ask you something. Ask away them, a boy, ask away. Sir, I wondered what you know about, about horcruxes. But this time, we don't get white fog or strange yells. We get at last the truth of what transpired, unvarnished, untarnished, naked, and bare. Slughorn asked Tom if this is for defense against the dark arts project, but Harry can tell that he knows this isn't schoolwork. Tom says, not exactly. He came across the term while reading, didn't understand it. Slughorn says, of course not. No school book would reveal those kinds of details. That's very dark stuff, he says. Very dark indeed. But you obviously know all about them, sir. I mean, a wizard like you. Sorry, I mean, if you can't tell me, obviously, I just knew if anyone could tell me, you could. Harry, who has been working for eons to secure information from Slughorn, recognizes a master at work here. The subtlety of the manipulation, Mm -hmm. the brilliance of the flattery and charm. Slughorn, won over, betrayed by his own thirsts, says it can't hurt to provide an overview. He says, just so that you understand the term, a horcrux is the word used for an object in which a person has concealed part of their soul. Remember how many years readers spent wondering, not just how Harry survived, an answer we got when we learned the power of Lily's sacrifice, but why Voldemort did not die. Mm -hmm. How many theories his graveyard boast? I, who have gone further than anybody along the path that leads to immortality, spawned about what the path was and how exactly he had gone further down it. He tells Slughorn here that he doesn't understand how that works. From the book, his voice was carefully controlled, but Harry could sense his excitement. Well, you split your soul, you see, said Slughorn, and hide part of it in an object outside the body. Then, even if one's body is attacked or destroyed, one cannot die, for part of the soul remains earthbound and undamaged. But of course, existence in such a form, Slughorn's face sinks as he speaks these words. And in that moment, Harry finds himself, like the reader, thinking back to Voldemort's graveyard stunt. I was ripped from my body. I was less than a spirit, less than the meanest ghost. But still, I was alive. And this is how. This is why. The Avada Kedavra spell that rebounded upon him, thanks to Lily's sacrifice, expunged the life force that it hit. But that was not the only thing keeping Voldemort alive. His soul was not just in his body, but in the Horcrux. Horcruxes, plural, as we'll learn momentarily, that he had made. Slughorn is clearly beginning to regret entering into this conversation, beginning to sense on Mm -hmm. some level that he has gravely erred. Few would want it, Tom, very few. Death would be preferable. But he's speaking to someone who simply does not agree, fundamentally rejects death as, as Dumbledore has said, a shameful human weakness. Who will go on to shout to Dumbledore in the Ministry of Magic in Order of the Phoenix, quote, there's nothing worse than death. Who will believe himself superior not only to all other beings, but to the thing that claims all of those beings in the end. Riddle's hunger is clear to Harry as he brushes off Slughorn's warning and asks, baldly, how do you split your soul? (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) At this point, the conversation has left the realm of the academic. He's entered a zone of inquiry and specificity that should terrify even the dimmest conversationalist. And Slughorn is nothing of the sort. He is astute, observant, highly aware. 
and yet he plows on, warning that splitting the soul is, quote, an act of violation. It is against nature. Think of the role that souls play in the story. Think of how when a Dementor performs its kiss and sucks out its victim's soul, all that's left is an empty husk. The soul in J.K. Rowling's world is the very essence of humanity. And yet Tom Riddle asks, not what the cost of such a violation is, but how to go about securing it. (laughs) But how do you do it, he says. By an act of evil, Slughorn replies, the supreme act of evil. By committing murder. Killing rips the soul apart. The wizard intent upon creating a horcrux would use the damage to his advantage. He would encase the torn portion. Encase, but how? Tom interjects. Horace, run. There can be no ambiguity now. No doubt what Tom Riddle is asking. Remember, he's already wearing Marvolo Gaunt's ring, Mm -hmm. which means that he has already killed his father and his grandparents. He isn't even contemplating the idea of murder. It's easy for him now. He's done that. Yeah, he's done it. He killed his father. He's not contemplating what toll pursuing immortality would force him to pay. He's paid it already and paid it gladly. He wants to know how to maximize his purchase. Yeah. He did that because he wanted to. Slughorn issues his fiercest reply yet. There is a spell. Do not ask me. I don't know. Do I look as though I have tried it? Do I look like a killer? When Tom says he didn't mean to offend Slughorn, Slughorn calms down. He continues, it's natural to feel some curiosity about these things. Wizards of a certain caliber have always been drawn to that aspect of magic. Remember what we heard Voldemort say to Dumbledore when he came to ask for a job? My kind of magic. He's not afraid of what tempts him. He's utterly assured, not only that it's right for him, but that it's right full stop. If he wants it, he should have it. Recall what his servant Quirrell said to Harry and Sorcerer's Stone, parroting his master's teachings. Quote, there is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. Voldemort doesn't actually believe that he's giving anything up, that he's sacrificing anything sacred and pure by killing and using those murders to further warp his already broken soul. He believes that he's pursuing just what others lack the ambition or courage or skill or strength to chase. His next question reveals the unrivaled depths of his depravity, gives Dumbledore the final puzzle piece that he's lacked, the key that unlocks the truth of how to defeat him. He says, Would one Horcrux be much use? Can you only split your soul once? Wouldn't it be better, make you stronger, to have your soul in more pieces? I mean, for instance, isn't seven the most powerfully magical number? Wouldn't seven? And Slughorn is horrified. (laughs) Merlin's beard, Tom. Seven isn't bad enough to think of killing one person? And in any case, bad enough to divide the soul, but to rip it into seven pieces? Harry observes that he looks, quote, deeply troubled now. Now? Yeah, I (laughs) know. And he's looking at Tom as though he had never seen him before, and now he does. And of course, he hasn't seen him before. Here, too, we have another bit of clarity, not only the source of Slughorn's shame and the key that Dumbledore has been hunting, but the reason that Voldemort so badly wanted Slughorn. Slughorn, as we see here, as we'll understand even more in the coming pages and will understand fully in Hallows, was able to do more damage than a prophecy or a magical duel ever could. He was able, with a healthy push or two, to undo Voldemort with real power, information, revelations, and the truth of his desire. Slughorn, clearly in an effort to assuage his own bubbling terror, asks for assurance that this is all academic and then tells Tom to keep it quiet yeah, regardless. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, oh, yeah. It's just between us. Yeah, if I killed, say, six people. <laughs> it's a banned subject at Hogwarts, he says. Quote, people wouldn't like to think we've been chatting about Horcruxes. You don't say. 
This is part of the brilliance of Voldemort's maneuver, of course. He doesn't need to be told to keep quiet, but he does need to be certain that Slughorn will. Mm -hmm. And here Horace is granting him his own demand without him ever needing to even issue it. Quote, Dumbledore's particularly fierce about it, Slughorn says. And again, here we must wonder when he's come across them. Is this a philosophical and moral aversion in principle, or did Dumbledore come across this thirst once before? As Tom leaves, Harry observes his face full of, quote, that same wild happiness it had worn when he had first found out that he was a wizard, and observes again that it doesn't make him better looking, but less human. And how fitting given that the information he just acquired will rob him of any humanity that he may have still possessed. Dumbledore and Harry come out of the memory, and Dumbledore sits down behind his desk. He says, I have been hoping for this piece of evidence for a very long time. It confirms the theory on which I've been working. It tells me that I am right, and also how far there is still to go. And he spells it out now, just to make sure that Harry and the reader alike are crystal clear. At basically the same age that Harry is, Right now, at this very moment, uh-huh. Voldemort was doing everything in his power to find out how to become immortal, unkillable. Harry asks if he succeeded, if that's why he didn't die when the curse meant for baby Harry rebounded. From the book, a bit of his soul was safe. We've arrived at the crux of it. A bit or more, Dumbledore says. He went to Slughorn mostly to ask about making more than one horcrux, to ask What would happen to the wizard so determined to evade death that he would be prepared to murder many times, rip his soul repeatedly so as to store it in many separately concealed horcruxes? He says that as far as he knows, as far as Voldemort knew, no wizard had ever done more than tear his soul in two. Dumbledore begins to explain how his clarity arrived four years ago when Harry handed him, quote, certain proof that Voldemort had split his soul. The diary, our good friend Tom's diary. Yeah. He says that what Harry described to him about the riddle who emerged from the diary was, quote, a phenomenon I had never witnessed. Mere memories don't act and think for themselves or sap the life out of another person. Quote, no, something much more sinister had lived inside that book, a fragment of soul. I was almost sure of it. The diary had been a horcrux, but this raised as many questions as it answered. Well, why is he saying that? Because, as he explains, what intrigued and alarmed me most was that the diary had been intended as a weapon as much as a safeguard. The diary concealed a part of soul, yes, and surely did its part to keep its maker alive when his body had been ripped away. But Voldemort wanted that diary read, not in the manner in which Lucius implemented it, perhaps, but it was always his intention, in some way, to allow another person, through the diary's instruction, to open the Chamber of Secrets and again unleash Slytherin's horrors anew. And that matters because, as Dumbledore explains, quote, he was being remarkably blasé about that precious fragment of his soul. The whole point of a Horcrux is to create a safeguard to shield the piece of soul within. The diary would be in the hands of other people, which meant that it could be destroyed, as indeed it was. Harry, without knowing it, killed one of Voldemort's horcruxes with the fang of a basilisk. Basilisk venom being one of the rare magical forces that can beat them. In Hallows, Ron and Hermione will go to the chamber to retrieve a fang to destroy the cup. And Ron will use the sword of Gryffindor, which Harry used to slay the basilisk, thus imbibing it with the same venom to beat the locket. Dumbledore says that the diary's usage left him with no other conclusion. If Voldemort could treat one horcrux, one fragment of his soul this way, he must have made more. But how many? He gained more clarity when Harry returned from the graveyard in Goblet. 
sharing the line we recently mentioned from the book, I, who have gone further than anybody along the path. Further than anybody. But how far? The Death Eaters may not have known what that meant, but Dumbledore recognized the significance. Multiple horcruxes, helping to explain not only the diary's dual purpose and his coded graveyard language, but also his physical transformation. From the book, Lord Voldemort has seemed to grow less human with the passing years, and the transformation he has undergone seemed to me to be only explicable if his soul was mutilated beyond the realms of what we might call usual evil. Now we return to this idea of usual evil. We return often, too, to Sirius, his, quote, the world isn't split into good people and Death Eaters line, which we tend to use to show that not all bad people are actually Death Eaters. But there's not just room in between those two terms. There's room on the extremes. And in seeking to conquer death in this fashion, Voldemort occupied alone a position on the edge beyond the recognizable or redeemable. You know my goal, he said in the graveyard, to conquer death. And now I, have t- I was tested and it appeared that one or more of my experiments had worked for I had not been killed, though the curse should have done it. One or more. Harry asked why he couldn't have used or made a sorcerer's stone. Why he had to kill people. We'll save our talk about the Deathly Hallows for now. But note here quickly that that also would have been another way. A way, amazingly, that Voldemort remained ignorant to. But as for the stone, Voldemort would not have wanted to be dependent on the elixir, Dumbledore says. And it must be said, the same logic would apply to the Hallows, which, as we see, can be robbed. Quote, Voldemort liked to operate alone, remember. He sought the stone in Harry's first year only as a stopgap measure, a bridge back to a body. He never would have wanted to rely forever on someone or something else. In a way, splitting his soul to make horcruxes reinforces the very idea that he values so highly, that he is superior, that he deserves to be encased in trophies, that he deserves to be spread across these strongholds of magic forevermore. Quote, but now, Harry, armed with this information, the crucial memory you have succeeded in procuring for us, we are closer to the secret of finishing Lord Voldemort than anyone has ever been before. I will never forget Mm -hmm. reading that line for the first time. Voldemort did not just ask Slughorn about making more than one, Dumbledore notes. He asked about a very specific number. Remember, quote, isn't seven the most powerfully magical number? Yes, Dumbledore says, quote, I think the idea of a seven-part soul would greatly appeal to Lord Voldemort. A student of magic, a scholar, an experimenter and boundary pusher, someone with not only respect, but reverence for magic in its highest forms. Harry is pretty freaked out. Yes. (laughs) From the book. They could be anywhere in the world, hidden, buried, or invisible. I'm glad to see you appreciate the magnitude of the problem, Dumbledore said. But he also corrects Harry for asking if he made Seven, he says, the seventh part of his soul, however maimed, resides inside his regenerated body. That was the part of him that lived a spectral existence for so many years during his exile. Without that, he has no self at all. Seventh piece of soul will be the last that anybody wishing to kill Voldemort must attack, the piece that lives in his body. And here, on the high of this discovery, the euphoria of such an astonishing bit of clarity, we must note and lament this lie. Harry is the seventh Horcrux, the one that Voldemort never meant to make. Yes. The casing for the piece of his soul that rebounded when the killing curse struck. Harry will learn this not from Dumbledore here, but from Snape in the memories he shares in the final moments of his life. From the book, Harry must not know. Not until the last moment, not until it is necessary, will hear Dumbledore tell Snape in those memories. Otherwise, how could he have the strength to do what must be done? 
It's taken quite a lot of strength just to process what he's hearing now. Six, okay, that's still a lot. How do we find them? Well, Dumbledore says, you've destroyed one, the diary. Quote, and I have destroyed another. He raises his hand. Here it is at last, clarity about how Dumbledore suffered this injury. Or at least, as much clarity as we can glean absent the full truth of his personal history and his desperation for the resurrection stone and the Deathly Hallows. The ring, Marvolo Gaunt's ring, quote, and a terrible curse there was upon it too. Only his own, as he says, prodigious skill and Snape's timely action when Dumbledore returned to Hogwarts saved him. Quote, a withered hand does not seem an unreasonable exchange for a seventh of Voldemort's soul. The ring is no longer a horcrux. Note here, he does not say, and a one-year time limit on my life. Harry does not ask how he destroyed the ring, how he killed this horcrux, an oversight that he will come to deeply, deeply regret. But he does ask something else that's key. How'd you find it? Robert Baratheon voice. How'd you do it? (laughs) Dumbledore says, basically, that's what all this is about, my guy. (laughs) Quote, I've made it my business to discover as much as I can about Voldemort's past life. I have traveled widely, visiting those places he once knew. I stumbled across the ring hidden in the ruin of the Gaunt's house. Voldemort never guessed that Dumbledore or anyone would try to find out about his history or be able to or visit his ancestors' ruin of a home, or look for these traces of concealed magic. But there's work to do. Four horcruxes, five, remain. Harry asks if they could be anything, and Dumbledore not unkindly says he's thinking of portkeys. He says, you are forgetting what I've showed you. Lord Voldemort liked to collect trophies, and he preferred objects with a powerful magical history. His pride, his belief in his own superiority, his determination to carve for himself a startling place in magical history. These things suggest to me that Voldemort would have chosen his horcruxes with some care, favoring objects worthy of the honor. Harry says that the diary wasn't special, but Dumbledore corrects him, forcing Harry to consider the subtleties, the degrees at play. The diary proved that he was Slytherin's heir. It was, as Dumbledore says, of stupendous importance. Harry asks if Dumbledore knows what they are, and Dumbledore says he can only guess, but that knowing Voldemort's penchant for objects with a certain grandeur, he's been looking through his past specifically for those that fit the bill and have, quote, disappeared around him. The revelations strike Harry. The locket, the cup. Dumbledore said he'd be willing to bet they were numbers three and four, five and six, We'll make no mentions of seven, Harry, my boy. Those are harder to pinpoint, but he has guesses. After landing objects from Slytherin and Hufflepuff, he'd want the other founders from the book. Four objects from the four founders would, I am sure, have exerted a powerful pull over Voldemort's imagination. He's not sure if Voldemort found something of Ravenclaw's, an amazing mark in Voldemort's favor in their chess game, given that we'll learn this Horcrux, the diadem, was in Hogwarts all these years. He's sure, however, that he never got anything from Gryffindor. Other than Harry, that is. (laughs) Godric's only known relic is the sword, and that's in Dumbledore's office, imbibed with a handy horcrux slaying venom to boot, though he doesn't say that here. Harry pieces together that this is why Voldemort came back to Hogwarts, a suspicion Dumbledore endorses. So what's the six horcrux? Dumbledore thinks he knows. Mm -hmm. He seems, in fact, much more sure of this than of the idea that Voldemort found something at Ravenclaw's. Quote, I wonder what you will say when I confess that I have been curious for a while about the behavior of the snake, McGinney. 
This is a stunner when you first read it, a long Mm -hmm. game foreshadowing for the idea of Horcrux as living being, and also an in-the-moment jaw-dropper that at once shocks and perfectly fits. It's not wise to use living creatures as Horcruxes, as they are inherently more at risk of being harmed. But it fits in so many respects. It fits with the idea that Voldemort, who never cared about people, would put more value in his snake than in any of his human companions. Though again, hello, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, trailer number three with the Nagini was a human, a maledictus reveal. And it fits with his hubris that his plot would go undiscovered. And thus, just as with the diary, that he could take an unconventional risk here by making this choice. Dumbledore says that his calculations indicate Voldemort was one Horcrux short when he entered Harry's house to kill him that he reserved the creation of Horcruxes for, quote, particularly significant deaths. He believed that in killing you, Dumbledore says, he was destroying the danger the prophecy had outlined. He believed he was making himself invincible. I am sure that he was intending to make his final Horcrux with your death. He failed. Well, he succeeded, we will learn, but in a very different way than intended, a way, in fact, unknown even to him. And then later used Nagini to kill Frank Bryce, and then Dumbledore thinks converted her. Quote, I think he is perhaps as fond of her as he can be of anything. This is tough stuff for Bellatrix Lestrange here. Even for a parcel mouth, Dumbledore says, Voldemort has unusual control over her. Keeps her particularly close. Harry takes a look at the checklist. Diary and ring, gone. Locket, cup, snake, and something or even close to go. Keep her on your checklist, Harry, my boy. And this is where Dumbledore has been going. He's been hunting for another for a very long time and believes he's finally close to finding one more. Harry asks if he can go with Dumbledore when he finds it to help him get rid of it. From the book, Dumbledore looked at Harry very intently for a moment before saying, yes, I think so. We'll learn in Hallows that he knew he'd be dead soon, that he knew he'd need to train Harry to carry on in his stead, but he doesn't tell him that here, doesn't explain why he should be there. But he does say that Harry has earned the right. Harry asks if Voldemort knows when a Horcrux is destroyed, and this is key. Yes. I believe that Voldemort is now so immersed in evil that these crucial parts of himself have been detached for so long, he does not feel as we do. He knows the diary is gone because Lucius, who did not know it was a Horcrux, but sought to discredit Arthur and open the chamber, told him, and, quote, I am told that his anger was terrible to behold, but that's not the same as feeling it when it happened or realizing what it meant. He did not, as far as anyone knows, feel the loss of the ring. We'll see soon that this is true. He doesn't feel the destruction of his soul pieces, which he himself has destroyed so fully. He'll realize far too late when Harry is too close to his goal and not because he felt it, because Harry broke into the Lestrange vault. Now, Harry asks the question that this all really boils down to. If the Horcruxes are gone, can Voldemort be killed? Yes, I think so, Dumbledore says, withholding the painful truth of what Harry will have to face to get to that point, of the sacrifice that he cannot be told to make, but must choose to make on his own. He tells Harry not to forget that even once Voldemort is mortal, his skills and smarts will remain intact. Quote, it will take uncommon skill and power to kill a wizard like Voldemort, even without his horcruxes. But I haven't got uncommon skill and power, said Harry before he could stop himself. Dumbledore begins to tell Harry that he has a power Voldemort cannot comprehend. The love that we spoke about earlier in this episode, the love that we've talked about throughout the entire podcast, the love that Voldemort dismisses and mocks. Dumbledore presses the point. After all that he's been through, loving as Harry can, as Harry does, is a remarkable feat. Quote, you are still too young to understand how unusual you are, Harry. Harry asks, feeling let down, 
if the, quote, power the dark lord knows not reference in the prophecy is really just this. He will come to realize as he walks into the forest, surrounded by the forms of those who gave their lives for him, heading on his own to give his life for so many other people, how unimpeachable and magnificent that power really is. Dumbledore reminds him that the prophecy only matters because Voldemort made it matter. He thought Harry was the danger and thus made him the danger. And he says, but it comes to the same. No, it doesn't. Dumbledore's angry. You are setting too much store by the prophecy. And this is wonderful to hear, a reminder of the primacy of the core pillars on which this saga is built. No one and nothing can tell you who you are or what you must be. You get to choose. Yes. Prophecies, the idea of destiny, are central to fantasy lore. The subversion of a classic trope is a sincere achievement. The prophecy only matters now because Voldemort chose to think that it mattered then. Harry does not have to seek to destroy him because a prophecy demands it. He has to do it because the reality of his life demands it. His heart demands it. Justice demands it. From the book, if Voldemort had never murdered your father, would he have imparted in you a furious desire for revenge? Of course not. If he had not forced your mother to die for you, would he have given you a magical protection he could not penetrate? Of course not. Harry, don't you see? Voldemort himself created his worst enemy, just as tyrants everywhere do. Have you any idea how much tyrants fear the people they oppress? Always Voldemort proud, looking for those who would seek to undo him. When a whisper reached his ear, he acted rashly, foolishly. From the book again, with the result that he not only handpicked the man most likely to finish him, he handed him uniquely deadly weapons. Harry's stuck. But in Dumbledore is perhaps as agitated as we've ever seen him. And it's no wonder. In light of the ultimate reveal, everything hinges on Harry finding motivation and courage and conviction in the right place in himself, in what he feels, not in whispered words from a glass orb. It is essential that you understand this, Dumbledore shouts, and he gets up and paces around the room. He reiterates that Voldemort gave Harry the tools for finishing him, a portal into his thoughts, his ambition, the ability to speak to snakes, the final secret, though he does not say so here, to undoing him. And yet, Harry has never been swayed to the dark side. Never been tempted at all. Of course I haven't, said Harry indignantly. He killed my mom and dad. You are protected, in short, Dumbledore shouts back, by your ability to love. The only protection that can possibly work against the lure of power like Voldemort's. Dumbledore says that Harry remains pure of heart, despite all he suffered. He notes what Harry saw in the mirror of Erised, and we know about Dumbledore's personal experience with that mirror, how much credence he pays to what shows up there. Harry didn't see power. He saw the way to thwart Voldemort. He saw love, his desire for it. Quote, Voldemort should have known then what he was dealing with, but he did not. But he knows it now. Harry can enter Voldemort's mind, but Voldemort cannot do the same. Possessing Harry, possessing someone so full of love is unbearable to him. Dumbledore says, I do not think he understands why, Harry. And of course not. If he did, It would mean that he could recognize love's power. Harry, trying not to sound obstinate, asks once more, but isn't it all the same in the end? From the book, I've got to try and kill him, or got to? Of course you've got to, but not because of the prophecy, because you yourself will never rest until you've tried. We both know it. And of course, Dumbledore is right. This is Harry's, quote, saving people thing as boon, as power, not an inhibition, but the source of his superiority. He wants to help people. He wants to choose what's right, not what's easy. 
He asks Harry to imagine how he'd feel right now if he'd never heard the prophecy. Think. Harry thinks of his parents and Cedric and Sirius and all the people Voldemort has ripped from his life and from the lives of others. And then we get one of the signature passages in the series. I'd want him finished, Harry says, and I'd want to do it. Harry's free to turn away. He's free to choose a different life. But Voldemort will always hunt him. He sets full store by the prophecy. And as long as he's hunting Harry, as long as he's hunting anyone, as long, in other words, as he is Voldemort, Harry will never be able to rest. He will choose every time to let love and courage guide him, to let the desire to protect others guide him. He will choose to fight. Here's the quote. He understood at last what Dumbledore had been trying to tell him. It was, he thought, the difference between being dragged into the arena to face a battle to the death and walking into the arena with your head held high. Some people, perhaps, would say that there was little to choose between the two ways. But Dumbledore knew, and so do I, thought Harry, with a rush of fierce pride, and so did my parents, that there was all the difference in the world. Well, this book is good. Mal? Yeah. It's natural to feel some curiosity about these things. Podcasters of a certain caliber have always been drawn to that aspect of magic. So please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the history of Horcruxes. When Hermione searches the library for an explanation or definition of Horcruxes, she's stymied by a lack of information betrayed by the library she always trusts. The only reference she can find in the book of Magic Most Evil isn't much help. Quote, of the Horcrux, wickedest of magical inventions, we shall not speak nor give direction. Luckily, we here at Binge Mode, with the help of Zach Cram, can provide a little more background. Yes! Even if J.K. Rowling has strategically withheld some key Horcrux details. In a 2007 interview with Pottercast, shouts to the Pottercast homies, Yes, Rowling revealed that the first Horcrux was created by Herpo the Fowl, a wizard in ancient Greece who was best known, according to his chocolate frog card, for becoming the first wizard to hatch a basilisk. A lot of good this guy did in the world. He then controlled his monstrous creation with Parseltongue, making him the rare person to successfully tame a class XXXXX5X beast, a designation applied to known wizard killers that cannot be domesticated. The very name Herpo relates to herpetology, the study of reptiles. So Herpo's role is fitting, and there is some speculation that he was an ancestor of Salazar Slytherin, and thus, Tom Riddle himself. But much of Herpo's history is shrouded in the myth of time, given that he lived at least as far back from Slytherin as Slytherin lived from Riddle. Now, if Tom Riddle is Jon Snow, and to be clear, we mean only in terms of their respective place in the family lines— not in terms of the kind of guy they are. And Salazar Slytherin is his ancestor, the Stark who knelt. Then Herpo Mm. the Fowl is like Bran the Builder, who did deeds so far in the past that he became more legend than man. Herpo wasn't even the first wizard to experiment with methods of soul storage. As Rowling explained in that Pottercast interview, quote, wizards would have been looking for ways to do exactly what Voldemort did for years. And some of the ways they would have tried would have killed them. 
She continues, splitting the atom would be a very good parallel in our world, something that people imagine might be able to be done, but couldn't quite bring it off. And people started doing it with sometimes catastrophic effects. So that's how I see the Horcrux. The catastrophic side effects continued even after Herpo blazed the trail, though. Souls are complex things, and intentionally splitting them is bound to yield adverse reactions. Some prospective Horcrux makers died in the attempt, and nobody ever went so far to create six or seven as Riddle did. It's unknown whether that's because no prior Dark Wizard was as innovative or ambitious as Riddle, or if it's because it became progressively harder to make new Horcruxes as each new one would make the soul increasingly unstable. The actual act of using a murder to make one is only vaguely described in the series. As Slughorn says, it involves a, quote, spell. Do not ask me. I don't know. Though Rowling has thought it through and hinted at its horror. She told Pottercast that it's, quote, too horrible, actually, to go into detail wow. about. <laughs> <gasps> The Horcrux remained a little explored branch of magic, but because of its history and the fact that some people did pursue them in the millennia between Herpo and Voldemort, some people did know about them. Slughorn is one, obviously, as Tom Riddle exploited, and Regulus Black's knowledge of this kind of dark magic allowed him to piece together Voldemort's plan. As Rowling explained in a 2007 chat with Bloomsbury, quote, Voldemort dropped oblique hints. In his arrogance, he did not believe anybody would be clever enough to understand them. So perfect, so fitting. The quote continues, he does so in the graveyard of Little Hangleton in front of Harry. He did this before Regulus, and Regulus guessed correctly what it was that made Voldemort so convinced he could not die. Dumbledore also notably knew about Horcruxes, at least enough to recognize the clue in Voldemort's taunts. But we don't know how Albus became familiar with the practice. Did Grindelwald think about them, perhaps? With the Fantastic Beast film series expanding the canon, the already wide canon as we speak, we might learn even more about Horcruxes soon. And Rowling might have reason to share the details of the horror that she's kept under wraps for years. Jason? Yes. I am not proud. I am ashamed of what of what the foreshadowing shows. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Prince chapters 20 through 23. Because I'm not sure if you've heard this recently, mm -hmm. but seven remains the most powerfully magical number. Thanks, Horace. I'll go first. Number one. When Voldemort says, you are omniscient as ever, Dumbledore, and Dumbledore replies, oh no merely friendly with the local barman, hmm. he is speaking, of course, about his brother Aberforth, the man in question. This is quite an interesting way to refer to a family member and particularly interesting phrasing given what we will learn in Deathly Hallows about their tortured family history and fractured relationship. Number two, when Slug and Hagrid are drinking, Slug refers to Ron as Rupert which is an extremely tough look for our guy <laughs> Slug, but a nice nod from Rowling to Ron's real-life portrayer, Rupert Grint. Great stuff. Number three, more lightning struck tower foreshadowing. When Harry has his encounter with nearly headless Nick, after he secures the memory, Harry says, where is he? When he hears the Dumbledore's back, and Nick says, oh, groaning and clanking up on the astronomy tower, it's a favorite pastime of his. Not the bloody Baron, Dumbledore, Harry says. Well, most devastatingly, Dumbledore will be up there too soon. Number four, Runeil Waslieb. 
mentions a funny line foreshadowing when Harry tries to pass off Ron's potions book as his after the Sectum Semper fiasco. Snape asks why the name Runeal Wasleeb is on the front cover. <laughs> Damn you and your quill, Ron Weasley. That's such a funny Runeal Wasleeb. Uh, number five. Of course, we must note that when Slughorn gives Harry the memory as the tears trickle down his cheeks and he remarks upon the similarity of Harry's and Lily's eyes before falling into a slumber, it is a beautiful and obvious parallel to and foreshadowing for Snape giving Harry his crucial memories one year later as Snape takes his last breath and looks into Lily's eyes once more. Number six. Can we talk about how many years the defense against the dark arts position was cursed for? Like, a lot of years. What we're looking at here, basically. Yes. Anywhere from 25 to 40 years that the position was cursed. So, that's somewhere between time. 25 and 40 different defense against the dark <laughs> arts teachers were needed. Who's taking that job at that point? Is it even like a suspicion that it's jinxed at that point? Aren't you basically sure? Because the two time frames, it's on the one hand, Dumbledore taking is over. a lot. Yeah, like the I mean, 20, smallest the, number the, is huge. The floor is a lot. Yes. We have the timestamp of Voldemort's job interview basically being 10 years after the Hokey memory, which seems to only be a couple years after he left Hogwarts. That math would place him at like 30-ish. And also That's like, a long time frame. And, and just think about what's happened to the Dada teachers that we know. Quirrell dead. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> murdered viciously by Harry's own hands in movie land. Right, in the movie, but also dead in the in yes. the books. Lockhart. Our beautiful Lockhart. Joined is, up writing. In Mungo's for life, without any memory. Very tough stuff. Very Lupin. Outed as a werewolf. Outed as a werewolf, but also like had a very scary incident while at school, which may yes. or may not have something to do with the jinx. Moody. <laughs> spent a year in his spent own trunk. Year, got, got spent a year in his and own trunk. the guy who was impersonating him no longer has a soul. All right. Then we get Umbridge, who was carried away by centaurs and trampled. So, I mean, you look at it, and it's like murders, mind wipe, and various other bad things. That's out of so far six. It's not good, guys. So, like, are we to, are we to expect that half of these minimum 25 data teachers died? <laughs> terrible it makes divination look a lot better (laughs) number seven another cheerful one here sadly the montgomery murder in this section foreshadows fenrir grayback's advanced atypical truly horrifying thirst for blood which bill weasley and later lavender brown will suffer firsthand Mal, Mm. awarding a champion is turning out to be much more trouble than I could have foreseen. Never having studied award-winning myself. In every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. Today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Albus Dumbledore. Small but extremely significant point. Keeps Trelawney from leaving. Keeps that information in her head from falling into Death Eater hands. In the past, in the Lord Voldemort's request memory, he once again gets the best of Tom Riddle in a chilly interaction, denying him the DADA post and showing knowledge about details of Riddle's life that Riddle didn't think were known. 
Meanwhile, in the present, he ably navigates his way around Harry's emotions and impresses upon him how important it is that he collect Slughorn's memory. Makes Harry feel like real bad. (laughs) Pretty bad. His long-term plan to recruit Slughorn back to Hogwarts so that he could set Harry on him and obtain the memory at last pays off, showing again Dumbledore's keen understanding of people and their motivations. And then, of course, he sees that memory, discovers that, hey, you know what? I've been right. Uh All this theorizing, all the research I've been doing, waiting for this one last jigsaw puzzle piece. He finds it and realizes, I was right all along. Looks like I am a smart guy. (laughs) Even without the aid of Nexus Lexus. And of course, most crucially of all, really, he breaks through to Harry about why they're fighting, what this really is all about, and why love is truly the most important factor in this battle. Great showing for our guy, Mm -hmm. Albus Dumbledore. And he doesn't have a lot of showings left. He doesn't. Tough stuff, as they say. Well, friends, you yourself will never rest until you've tried, just as Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, never do. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing Prince chapters 24 through 26. Please also check out the trailer breakdown for Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald on the Ringer YouTube channel and all Ringer platforms. Till then, remember, Mm -hmm. we've been podcasting for a very long time. We think perhaps we may be close to finding another. There are hopeful signs. Uh... Professor, I just wanted to ask you, you know, something. Sure, go ahead, my boy, whatever. Uh, Horcruxes. You ever heard? What? No, those are awful, Tom. Well, yeah, I'm just, you know, curious about them, you know, what they do. Well, you know, it's the rip of your soul. It's an awful, awful thing. Okay, I'll see you later. Well, hold on, one more. Purely theoretically. <laughs> let's say I was to rip my soul. How would I do it? You'd have to kill somebody. It's terrible. Okay. Let's say I've killed people. <laughs> and I wanted to kill more. Let's say I wanted to kill like five, six more. <laughs> uh, Tom, this is, oh, my God. It's my boy, you'll never make Minister of Magic at this rate. I'll never let them hear you talking about this. I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs>